All right, let's jump into Revelation. Uh, Revelation 1.1 says, The revelation of Jesus Christ to show to his servants the things that must soon take place. The things that many, many years ago that were soon to take place are the things that are happening here and now today that are happening throughout our lifetime. So none of what is transpiring in our world today, no matter how horrific it may seem to us, is a surprise to God. He is aware, he was aware that these things were going to happen. And so he tells us that these things will happen, that, that, that there will be horrors, that suffering will come, that plagues, spiritual plagues are going to occur. He tells us these things to prepare us so that in the midst of them, we can be sturdy. In the midst of evil all around us, in the midst of our suffering, we can have joy and stability. And the way in which we find stability in these hard times is by trusting in Jesus. And that is why the author of Revelation is seeking to reveal Jesus to us, to tell us this is who Jesus is. And the Jesus that we read about in the book of Revelation is multifaceted. He is a warrior, but he is also gentle. He is near to us. He is amongst his churches, always present with us. He is loving, and he shows this, his love for us through his sacrificial death on the cross. He is good, and he is just, and at all times he is powerful. He is the one true king. And then all of this comes together, this picture of who Jesus is comes together, and it leads people to worship him. And what we find in Revelation over and over is that people are falling on their faces, honoring Jesus, singing songs to him. And that's a picture that we get today as well. So on the heels of the foretelling of mass destruction, which is what we've talked about a couple of weeks ago, and chapter six ending with the question, who can stand the answer that we have been given is that those in Jesus are the ones who will stand. And so we, we got part of that answer last week as we looked at the 144,000. Now we get that the same answer today, just from a different angle. So we're going to be in Revelation chapter 7. Let me read the verses that we are looking at this morning. After this, I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number, from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God, who sits on the throne, and to the Lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures, and they fell on their faces before the throne and worshiped God, saying, Amen, blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Then one of the elders addressed me, saying, Who are these clothed in white robes, and from where have they come? After this, I looked, and behold, a great multitude. No, sorry. Got an extra slide in there. 
I said to him, sir, you know. And he said to me, these are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the lamb. Therefore, they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. They shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more. The sun shall not strike them, nor any scorching heat. For the lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd, and he will guide them to springs of living water, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Let's pray. God, there are some great promises in these verses. Help us to hear them, to be impacted by them. Help us to see who Jesus is as he's revealed in these verses and help us in these moments together to trust him increasingly. I pray that our faith in the gospel would grow supernaturally in these moments and in the days that follow that we would be able to remember who Jesus is and that our hope would be centered fully and only on him. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. All right, so this is what we're going to look at today. We're going to look at the setting and the context of what's going on in these verses, and that's going to be the bulk of our time. Then we're going to just briefly hit on symbolism, look at Jesus as lamb, the great tribulation, and then some practical considerations for us today. So the setting of where this occurs has undergone a subtle shift from where we were last week as we talked about the 144,000. The 144,000 was a vision that John saw taking place on earth. So what we learned last week was that the 144,000 was a spiritual not a literal, but a spiritual portrayal of true Israel, which is what we know today as Jesus' church. And Jesus was clearly depicted as the head of his church. And what we found in those tribes of the, that made up the 144,000 was that there were people included in those tribes that would surprise us or that should at least surprise us. These 144,000 were enlisted as Jesus' soldiers to fight sin through the spreading of the gospel here on earth. But now in verse 9, what we read today, we now see a transition from earth. So the perspective last week was from earth. The perspective this week is coming from heaven. Now, this emphasis on both heaven and earth is important because it highlights realities for us that we are prone to forget, namely God's perspective. In our worlds, the things that we are focused on here are things like mowing our lawn or doing our job or eating or filling our gas cans, but God is watching over everything ruling over the whole world. And this includes both heaven and earth. Now, for us here in this world, on this earth, we will freak out about many things. We freak, about, freak out about a shortage of toilet paper or a shortage of 
gas, or when someone is driving slow in front of us. Like, like we have an endless list of things that we will freak out about. But God, when we look at him and his perspective, he is patiently ruling over all things. God is patiently holding our hands to help us see there is so much more to life than we oftentimes see. And in this, as he does this, as he bears with us, as he walks with us, he is demonstrating his care for us. He is engaged and working in both things happening here on earth as well as things that are happening in a cosmic sense as well. And so the very real heartaches and heartbreaks that are part of our lives here on earth, he sees them, he knows them, and he cares so much about them that he promises to take the hardest things that we encounter and to use them for our good. It's an unbelievable promise. His kingdom is being established right now in ways that we oftentimes struggle to see. So we get this picture of God ruling over heaven and earth. And this teaches us things about him. But the picture that we're getting here in chapter 7 of Revelation tells us not only about God, but also some aspects about those who are around the throne as well. Some of those, as we see these people being described around the, the throne, they are probably standing in places that maybe we envision ourselves standing at some point in the future. This is a people, the ones around the throne, this, this is a people that no one could number. It is a massive amount of people who have trusted in Jesus and are saved by him. Now, in a world that seems increasingly hostile towards Jesus, this is a good reminder for us that there is an uncountable number of people who have radically entrusted themselves to Jesus, who have put their trust in the gospel. I think this is one of the ways in which Satan seeks to trick us, to deceive us, is that when we look around us, maybe in our everyday lives, not when we're gathered here corporately together as a church, but in our everyday lives, we can look around and be like, man, there's a lot of people who don't believe in Jesus, or flippantly believe, nominally believe in Jesus, and, and almost to kind of subtly move us towards unbelief as well create questions in our own hearts as well. And this is why, this is why it's so good for us to read the Bible, to get God's perspective, a bigger perspective than maybe what we see day in and day out. So this is a number of people that no one could number. It is also a people from all tribes and peoples and languages from every nation on this earth. As I've said numerous times in the past year, heaven is most likely or will be a white supremacist nightmare. It will. This is a diverse people that we're reading about here. It, it, I was thinking this last week and I posed this question to Casey, like what language will, 
will we speak about or will we speak in heaven? In our propensity, I was thinking about this as an American, our propensity is to view the world from our perspective, right? And so oftentimes we think it's a major inconvenience and disservice if people don't speak our language, if they don't speak English. And I've even experienced this tra traveling to other countries as well. Like you, you don't, you're going to expect me to speak your language, to try and pronounce these things on your menu, right? Like so ego ethnocentric in the way that we can think about these things. I think this is another way in which we have been deeply shaped by a culture that seeks to affirm our every whim and desire as long as we are willing to pay the necessary fee for whatever that thing might be. What this is, is this is consumerism, wreaking havoc in our hearts, making us think that things are supposed to revolve around us. The people being described here, the people who will take up residence in heaven, they will be very different from us in many ways. And this description, when it's talked about here, it's not saying this in a negative way, how maybe we can feel at times if someone doesn't get us or understand us, what's wrong with them that they don't understand us. This isn't being portrayed as a negative reality. The fact that people are different from one another isn't something that we just put up with begrudgingly. It's intended to be a gift to us, a benefit for us and not in the way we maybe have been shaped thinking that then those people can do the jobs that I don't want to do that that's how we oftentimes think about it it's for our good for our joy the fact that we are knit together this is how Jesus puts his church together as well that we complement one another not people doing the stuff I don't want to do or that I'm above but we complement one another. Notice then the posture of these people. They are standing before the throne and before the Lamb. The idea is that they are focused on Jesus. They are turned towards him. This is the call of the Christian life, to look at Jesus. In John 15, Jesus calls his followers to abide in me, to be near to Jesus, to find our life in him, to be in agreement with him. So when we read this description of what John is seeing in heaven, of throngs of people turned towards Jesus and fixated on him, this is merely an extension and intensification of what Christians are called to do right here, right now on earth. So let's consider this for a moment. When we wake up in the morning and when you wake up in the morning and you look at your calendar, all the things that you have going on during your day, do you ever consider or imagine yourself standing before Jesus as it pertains to what, what's on your calendar for that day? When you, or, or what consideration might you give to Jesus in both the exciting parts of your day as well as the mundane aspects of your day? Do you see Jesus as vital? Not just a convenient add-on when you need him, but 
as vital to your everyday goings on. One way that the Bible calls us to think about life here on earth is as a dress rehearsal for the real thing that will take place in heaven. As we go about our mundane days here on earth, this is all a dress rehearsal for what's going to happen throughout eternity. Now in our wrestling about this, we've, we've gotta be honest. Many people, when we think about heaven and this idea of ongoing worship of Jesus, we tend to think that that can sound a bit boring. Do you feel that? Do you guys think about that at times? Like, is, is this picture that's being portrayed here, is this really what it's going to be like? We're just turned towards Jesus and like singing songs? I think what tends to happen is when, when we have this picture in our mind, and we've got this guttural feeling that it, it could be this boring thing. It can create this hesitancy within us about how good heaven might actually be. Now, I'm not, I'm not trying to encourage that idea, but if that's where you find yourself, if that's a legitimate concern that you have within yourself, th then we've got to wrestle through that. We've got to talk through that. Because when we read the rest of the Bible, God's desire is not that we are bored people. He, he wants us to be filled with joy. He wants us to be stretched. Stretched to the point where we, all we can do is, is we can trust in him. Like that's all we are able to do. And so the Christian life is not intended to be boring. And it says in verse 15, it says there that they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. So when we read that, we tend to think about that being a literal occurrence. Like there's this fancy throne upon which God himself sits. We are facing that throne. And I think what we oftentimes think then is that we're uttering these mindless phrases of praise just to kind of appease God, give him what he wants. So I, I want to just think about this maybe a little bit more in line with the whole of the Bible and maybe a little bit imaginatively as well. In Isaiah 66, we read there, heaven is my throne. Heaven is my throne. Okay, so if the throne, if God's throne is not merely just like a golden throne that an individual might sit on, but his throne is whole of the heavens, that expands our idea of what God's throne might be. And, and thinking for us today, that means we're always before God's throne. Like we look up wherever we're at and, and we see, in a sense, God's throne always before us and, and always above us. We're below his throne. But maybe it's not the throne so much that gets us. Maybe it's the serving God day and night in his temple that gets us bent out of shape. So what then is God's temple? What is this temple? We get some pictures in the Bible. In the Old Testament, 
what we find that God's temple is, is it was where God would meet with his people. So in the tabernacle or in the temple, God's people would come there. They would gather there. God's presence would come there. And that, that is where he would meet with his people. In the New Testament, one of the things that we read is that our bodies are God's temple. So in one sense, you know, there's this, there is this idea that many people think like the temple meet for us today would be like, oh, that's when we're just in church together. But, but the Bible blows up that idea. It's much greater, much bigger. And so in one sense for us today, we, we can't really escape God's temple. If we are a Christian, if our bodies are intended to be treated in such a way that God resides there, that he meets with us in the midst of our bodies, we have to ascend to the fact that we're always serving God here and now. At, at least that's God's intention. Maybe we're not always doing that, but that is God's intention for us that we would view the whole of our lives as service to him. And then what does that serving look like? Colossians 3, 23 and 24 says, whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord. You are serving the Lord Christ. Whatever you do, the most mundane thing that we can do is intended to be service, working for Jesus. So the options for serving God are not limited to a church gathering. They're when you go to work, they're when you're washing dishes, when you're making a meal at home. It's every part of our lives. When we're playing sports, when we're taking a test, the places where service can and should occur is anywhere, anywhere. And to come back to this piece on, well, is it boring? This idea that the Christian life is boring or that what heaven is going to be is boring, I, I just don't see that in the Bible. And, and I think one of the things that can kind of push against this idea of boredom is, so think about talking to someone else about Jesus. Okay, this is something that Jesus calls, when he saves us, he calls us to join him on his mission. So when someone says the Christian life is boring, a great question for us, or if we feel that, a great question for us to, re to wrestle with is, have we talked to anybody about Jesus recently? Because I think the reason we don't talk to people about Jesus is not because we think it's boring, it's, it's because we're fearful of things, or we don't know what to say. So even in that, there's this massive challenge, this adventure that we can be called into. And so if you ever feel like the Christian life is boring, try and share Jesus with somebody. I guarantee you it will snap you out of boredom really quick. And, and it's one of the most exhilarating things whether they receive it or not, there's just a ton of joy for us 
in that. When we hear of people crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God, blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever. This is not happening because God is looking for people to half-heartedly patronize him. These people are doing this because they have seen Jesus for who he really is. They've understood that he really is the epitome of power and of glory. And not by just a little bit, but by far, he's the epitome of power and glory. They believe this. And they cannot help but shout this out. They're compelled to say these things, to bow before his throne. So at some point in their life, they've felt the burn of hunger in their stomach. But they've also experienced the spiritual nourishment that comes from Jesus. When Jesus says, I am the bread of life, they've seen how Jesus spiritually can impact their physical realities. Jesus satisfies them in a way a really good meal cannot. These people have felt the parched dryness in their throat, longing for a drink, while also then encountering Jesus as living water, as being the one who satisfies their parched throat. He satisfies their spiritual thirst in a way a cold glass of water cannot satisfy. They've wept tears of bitter sadness, but they can also look on the horizon and see that Jesus will right every wrong and how even now he brings peace in the midst of impossible circumstances. Every tear will be wiped away. Every tear. Jesus knows what we need. In all of his wisdom and all of good, all of his goodness, he truly is deserving of worship. And this is the intention of our lives, not just in heaven, but here on earth as well. So this picture of what's transpiring in heaven is intended to reflect back to us what it looks like to worship Jesus now in our lives here on earth. Okay. Because I'm so insistent on reading Revelation in a symbolic manner, I want to highlight explicit examples of symbolism as they pop up here for us. Verse 14 says, They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. All right. A literal interpretation of that statement makes absolutely no sense. For one, I I've never met the person who washes their clothes in blood. Right? And for sure, no one would be able to whiten anything with blood. So the white robes here are speaking to holiness, cleanliness, to people being forgiven. And it is the blood of the lamb that makes us spiritually clean and allows us to draw near to God. So that, that's the symbolic nature of what's being communicated here And here in this section, these nine verses that we're looking at this morning, there is this emphasis on the Lamb. And, and this emphasis, it's in the Bible in general and Revelation specifically, that they're going to great lengths to keep this Lamb imagery 
and specifically related to Jesus in the forefront of the reader's mind. It is crucial. It is the crux of Christianity that we understand Jesus as the sacrificial lamb. This is so important. God himself comes to earth and is slaughtered like a lamb being led to the slaughter. But not meaninglessly. He's doing it for the forgiveness of our sins. There's no good works we can do so that we can be forgiven. The whole point of Christianity leans on this reality that Jesus came. He lived a perfect life and he dies a brutal death so that his blood being shed for our sins provides us, allows us the ability to be forgiven of our sin and to be near to God himself. Okay, let's talk briefly here about the great tribulation. There has been much ink spilled over this topic, and much of that ink has focused on kind of a future seven-year period where all of the apocalyptic realities of Revelation are occurring. And so the things that we've been reading thus far, the things that we will read in the next 12 chapters or so, or so those are all located in this future seven-year period known as what some people will call the Great Tribulation. Now, this, this idea, that future seven-year period, that springs from a literal reading of Revelation. So just from the get-go, I don't think that's helpful, all right? I don't think that's what the whole of Revelation is communicating when, when we look at the whole of the book. And I think this is just really unhelpful because it encourages people, and this is really rampant today, to get serious about Jesus when trash starts to hit the fan, right? The reality is, many of us, if it's not in our face, if things aren't bad right now, we'll say, I'll deal with that in the future. We all have this tendency towards procrastination. The reality is, we are in tribulation right now. Some of you, I don't need to convince you of this, but we are in the midst of tribulation. In the first century, Jesus said this. In the world, you will have tribulation. He was saying that in the first century. And that was true for people in the first century. That was true for people in the 12th century. That's true for us in the 21st century. We know trouble. We know tribulation. It is occurring right now. This passage is envisioning those who come through the tribulation, those who sing the song of salvation and are part of Jesus' church. What we talked about last week in the 144,000 and are fighting the fight of faith in Jesus here on the earth. This week, we're just seeing the perspective from heaven. Those people who have gone through it, who have persisted in faith, and now see Jesus in all of his glory 
and cannot help but worship him because they see in his fullness all of his goodness, which is so much better than anything we have seen or experienced in this world. So when the Bible talks about wars and rumors of wars, many people will say, well, that's, that's that seven-year period. That, that's the great tribulation that is to come. And, and we should say no, clearly. Wars and rumors of wars, spiritual plagues are rampant today. We are in the midst of tribulation. Two points for us here as we close uh, gospel application. As a reminder for us, gospel application is, this is who Jesus is. This is what Jesus has done. This is not merely what we are called to do. Yes, we respond to who Jesus is. But most importantly, we need to remind ourselves, this is who Jesus is. This is what he has done. We need to trust in that and rest in him. First of all, Jesus is big. Jesus is the epicenter of blessing, of glory, of wisdom, and power. Listen, our view of Jesus tends to shrink as we get distracted, as we get busy, and as we pursue other things. Jesus never shrinks in stature or in importance, but he does shrink in our minds. He does shrink in our hearts. And right now, you might be illustrating this, this point I'm making by thinking about lunch, by thinking about emails, what, what's, whatever is in your email inbox, by thinking about afternoon plans, as a pastor, as your pastor, here's my concern. We read verses like this section we're looking at this morning, and our minds and our hearts begin to drift off, to think about other things. What this indicates is that Jesus is small to us. And a small Jesus does not command our attention. A small Jesus does not incite us to worship him. A small Jesus does not provoke us to study him, to know him more. A small Jesus gets our scraps. Now I could yell and try and get your attention about the fact that Jesus is big, that he can't get any bigger. But, but really, I just, I want to whisper to you. And I, wanna, I want you to hear this still, small whisper so that Jesus can create this yell, this shout in you, in your soul, through your life. And that you then would be moved, not, not, by just some emotion on a Sunday morning, that you would see Jesus for who he really is. And your life then would be the shout 
of Jesus' greatness. We read here in Revelation 7 that all of heaven is turned toward Jesus. It's the call for our lives. That our lives would be turned towards him. And the reason these people are turning towards Jesus is because they've understood these great realities of him. He will wipe every tear from your eye. He, will, he promises to do this. Those gut-wrenching realities, the things we're suffering now that we have suffered, that we will suffer in the future. He will wipe every tear from our eyes. He says, we will not hunger or thirst. We will be satisfied in a way we don't even know that is hard for us to comprehend right now. You will be satisfied. He says he will lead us to springs of living water. So the call for us is to believe this, to believe in this Jesus, this big Jesus, who will satisfy us in a way that no one, nothing else will here on earth. Jesus is big. When we see this, our lives then are intended to sing the song of Jesus' salvation. We would understand that we are comforted so that we might comfort others. We are blessed so that we might be a blessing. We are undeservedly loved so that we would love those who don't deserve it from us. Is the song of Jesus' salvation unmistakably clear in your life? Trusting in Jesus isn't about doing the minimum. It's not about just getting fire insurance to keep us out of hell. Living in this way, in a way in which we will sing the song of Jesus' salvation is so much more than Minnesota nice. No, we, we don't have to literally walk around waving palm branches like these verses we're talking about. That, that would be corny. But anyone trusting in Jesus will live as though he has conquered. Will live in such a way that the palm branches, the waving of them are signifying Jesus has conquered. He is victorious. He has saved and is saving and will save us from sin and hell and wrath. If we are trusting in Jesus, this is what our lives will be shouting. This is what my prayer has been for us this week. That our lives would sing the song of Jesus' salvation.